Aburi, the sky god, used to dwell way up in the atmosphere sky. He was a hunter, warrior, and he shot an eagle one day, and the eagle fell to the hunter, so he decided he needed to get this prize possession. He made a long vine and joined it together and keep coming on, coming on, till he ended up on Super's earth. He found the eagle, which became a special sacred animal for the indigenous people. And he never went back to his abode. So from the Orinoco, he came here to the sacred mountain and resided here. He brought more of his warriors with him. His mother, who is the mother of the forest, Durani, a female companion, they had children. And the first canoe was made by Aburi to travel from point A to point B. As we learned in episode one, the pre-Columbian native village of Kumukurapo was a major settlement along Trinidad's northwest peninsula. The next 500 years saw the unfortunate demise of the native population, coinciding with the constant arrival of other ethnic and racial groups from various parts of Europe, Africa, and Asia, combining to create a whole new cultural identity that became especially prominent in Woodbrook. It was only good just for planting rice, but look at it now, it is our paradise. Oh, what a decent locality, now is the Woodbrook vicinity. Welcome to Growing Up Woodbrook, the podcast. I'm Cecile George, Woodbrook born and raised and a member of the Woodbrook Residents Committee. Starting in this episode, we'll hear from the long-established residents how Woodbrook evolved during the second and third quarters of the 20th century. This is episode 10, From Pepper Pot to Callaloo. Dr. Ari Boomert's book, The Indigenous Peoples of Trinidad and Tobago from the First Settlers until Today, contains a Spanish account of how the natives in the Northwestern Peninsula lived in 1516. The Spanish describe large, bell-shaped communal houses with closed roofs, each large enough for 100 people. And one village comprised several of these houses. Warao shaman Raul Simon recalls how his ancestors lived up until the 17th century. The one that settled in the Orinoco, because we are water people, they settled along the banks of the river, built our houses on stilts, cash roof, and hut for not all the animals put together in the Amarillo, the white dog. But the main source of food was fish. It's a white fish that lives in the river that's similar to the summer. The people grew ground provisions and corn and fruit trees and supplemented their crops by hunting, fishing and gathering wild vegetable foods. Rice, which was one of our main source of food. Corn, maize, sugarcane. Our ancestors used to take that to make juice and wine to do retails done accordingly to the celestial bodies in the sky. Our ancestors knew exactly where each celestial body was in the sky and knew when to plant, when to reap. Cooking and storage utensils were made from wood, bark, bone and animal skins. Eating spoons were made from wood. 
pots were made from clay and stone, while cutting instruments were made from stone and bone. Foods like cassava, which they call yuk, was one of the main food. There are many, many products you could make with the cassava. One of the main dishes the natives consumed was called pepper pot, a dark, rich stew of wild meat, herbs, and cassareep, a syrup derived from the cassava root. The Spanish word for cassava is yuca, from the native word yuc. The mixture was cooked in a pot called a canary. It was boiled every day and as the stew was eaten down, fresh meat and seasonings were added. The daily boiling prevented bacterial growth and allowed the pepper pot to last indefinitely. They wouldn't cook all the meat in the same pot. They would mix the meat, the amarillo, and the white dog. The deer is similar to the chicken. They're doing separate machine and the fish will be baked. The cannery on the Woodbrook Estate occupied the detached kitchen of the Estate House, which was located where the Woodbrook Fire Station currently stands on Roberts Street. It was famed for its pepper pot that was kept continuously bubbling over a low flame, and by the time of the conversion of the plantation to lots in 1899, had allegedly been cooking for over 100 years. Rising house rates in Port of Spain in the 1940s and 50s were a knock-on effect of the 1935 Slum Clearance Bill, introduced by Captain Arthur Andrew Cipriani and supported by the City Council. It caused a critical housing shortage as many Port of Spain slums were demolished and lower-income residents displaced. The new lots being carved out of the Woodbrook Estate in the first few decades of the 1900s were snapped up by these displaced residents. With so many diverse ethnicities, backgrounds and religions thrown together into the container that was their new neighborhood, the Callaloo began to slowly bubble. Port of Spain was really three sort of areas. East Port of Spain, which would have been the Laventil Hills and the East Dry River location, working class. You had Sinclair, which was supposedly upper income area, and you had Woodbrook, which was the middle class, sort of middle working class area. Actually, Woodbrook was always a very interesting place because it had what you would call genuine middle and upper middle class residences, and then you had very lower income. I mean, Lower Street was a perfect case in point where the, the quality of the housing structure was quite acceptable to replacement required, sort of. Former minister Overan Padmore remembers being a young boy and teenager growing up in 1940s and 50s Woodbrook. It was ethnically mixed area. You had whites and off-whites. You had the African population. You had the Indian population. Lower Street was perhaps one of the most mixed of the streets. Woodbrook itself was a very quiet, peaceful residential area. As a child, I remember going from one level street to Adam Smith Square where we would play in the park and that sort of thing. And as Anglicans, we attended St. Crispin's Church, which is walking distance from one level street. I used to sing in the choir. 
as choir boys, whenever we had to go to the church for a funeral or a wedding, there was an inducement to us. We used to get six cents for attending as choir boys for a funeral and 12 cents for a wedding. And many a time you would have two weddings or a funeral and a wedding. And of course, six cents and 12 cents was money in those days. So that we always had a good turnout. We played on the street. We had our sports on the street. We bat and ball with the wind ball on the street. Uh, there were times when we would go to where Woodbrook Secondary School is. That was a kind of market savannah. There was the market and an open space where houses are now. We used to go and play cricket there. This morning at High Low, I went to buy beans and potatoes. Somewhere between seven and eight, I used to do the shopping for the household. And I used to get up in the morning very early, six o'clock, ride to the central market on Charlotte Street and do the grocery shopping at the corner of Lewis Street and Arapita Avenue. She take this corner, box of chicken chest. She choose out the best, mama. Yo, this ice cold box of chicken chest was found under Shin Island dress. The Right Reverend Clive Abdullah was ordained in 1970 as the first black Anglican Bishop of Trinidad and Tobago. He held this post until 1993. Among his many achievements is being the first bishop to serve as a member of the University Council of the University of the West Indies, and being the first West Indian bishop to serve on the board of directors of the Anglican Centre in Rome. My father had the corner property, Alberto Street, and the avenue, which is where we live. And it was two lots. The first lot was the house, and then the second lot was the place where we did all our mischief, where we had fun, where we played games, and where, in fact, we used to grow things. Everybody in Trinidad, as far as I can remember in those days, had a garden. So we grew yams, sweet potatoes, Irish potatoes, pawpaw, sabocas, you name it, we had it. And you never really went anywhere to get things except for those things that perhaps you didn't have in your own back garden. We also had chickens, ducks, and turkeys, and everything else under the sun. As I said, what you didn't have, you would beg from your neighbors and you would have a sort of barter system. I used to have to ride on my bicycle to the electric company right there across from the Lapu Cemetery. The ice factory was right there. And I would carry a bag because, of course, he would bring a 25-pound block of ice. And I would ask him to put it in the, the bag and then I would put it on the carrier of the bicycle make sure it was all right because it would, it would slip. It would slither into something else and that would be the end of the ice cream for what? <laughs> and you couldn't, you couldn't afford to have that happen. So I secured it as best I could from the little carrier behind me. I never so often looked behind to make sure it was still there. We used to make ice cream every Sunday. We had a freezer, we had ice, salt to, to lower the temperature. And we boys churned until the ice cream came in. But of course, when that happened, the whole activity in the house would cease because my mother would then take charge and say what is to happen. And we would see the ice cream going through the door. And you know, where's your boat? What's happening to us, you know? <laughs> but of course, it was that way. You send some to Auntie Nene, and you send some to Cousin this, to Grandma the other, and your, your friends that she decided should have. 
And so the ice cream went through the door faster than we would have liked. But there was always something for us. And of course, we cleaned it up. Dr. Ian Lee recalls growing up with a huge extended family in the 1940s. I had nine aunts and uncles who lived at College Street and they all worked in Port of Spain. They'd come back for lunch in their one-hour break and then they'd go back to work by bus or whatever. Quite a few cousins. I think I counted over 20 of them in all that came and went. And the yard at College Street was large, so we had a lot of space to run around. My grandmother and her sister, my aunt, they cooked every day. All of these cousins would come in and we'd have lunch, go back to school. So they would come there for lunch. And other times, like on a weekend, a few of them would probably drop in on a Sunday evening, dress up and come down. Very quiet, peaceful, loving household. So I was very happy there. Not many cars. I remember when the trolley buses first came, referred to them as silent death because uh, so quiet. They had no motor or such, but it ran on electricity. So, especially coming down the avenue, heading into Port of Spain, they would suddenly realize they were right there because Carlos Street House sort of almost bulged into the avenue. So it always seemed as if they were going to end up in a house. As the 40s segued into the 50s, Steel Pan and Carnival became subjects of concern and commentary for Woodbrook residents and wider society. Those were the early days of Steel Pan. All I remember in those days were groups of young men, about maybe 10 or so, 10, 12 young men, trotting up the road, beating anything, anything that could make a sound running up the road. There were no musical instruments by any means. At first, and then started getting the, like two-note drums whatever from whatever, whether they were garbage bins or whatever. But the boys always seem to be running, I don't know, I think running from people who didn't want them stealing their garbage bins or whatever. The sound, the sound, like, get those temples, like Jouvet, for instance. Of course, we were right there on the avenue. And Jouvet, we got from very early. We were listening for bands or whatever. And I remember all of that sound. At first, it was a chipping sound that came from way, way back. And all of it was a chipping sound. Sort of sound. Then you start hearing the pans in the back. You just begin hearing them. and. They got, they got closer coming up the avenue, you know, you got more and more sound. And it's really a thrilling sound. Carnival was very much a mixed bag in that you had even street fights, stick fights. People could get their heads open, you know, it really was not a, a nice scene. And then there were clashes between bands. And if the bands met up at all and they were not friendly one to the other, man, all hell broke, literally hell. So that what used to happen, if you wanted to play mass, you had to do it in a very protected and well-secured situation and place. They used to use trucks in those days, and many of the Chinese families used to, in fact, hire a truck on which they danced in the truck with music going on the time. And the truck, of course, would go wherever the truck driver and they had agreeable. So you were reasonably safe in a truck, but then on the street, 
you have to be very careful. You have to be careful where you walk, with whom you walk, what you did, etc. Man alive, I recall one of my mother's cousin, Llewellyn Roberts. He had two daughters. And so he said, where are you going? He said, I said, well, where are you going? with whom are you going? He said, well, Clive and Frank are going. He said, all right, they will look after you. It was that kind of a, of a, of a thing, you know. From the steel band clashes of the late 40s and early 50s, we'll travel next time through the second half of the 20th century, when Woodbrook became a prime residential community, and the Callaloo was bubbling on high flame. And we'll hear from more of Woodbrook's residents about what life was like between the 1950s and 1960s. Mr. Watson was the manager. But for right now, I'm your host, Cecile George. Our podcast is a companion to the Growing Up Woodbrook Coffee Table book, currently available worldwide, jointly published by the Woodbrook Residence Committee and the National Trust of Trinidad and Tobago. This podcast was made possible by the hard work and assistance of many people, including Warao Shaman Raoul Simon, Woodbrook residents Dr. Ian Lee, Overan Padmore, and the Right Reverend Clive Abdullah, and the generous assistance of music curators Sean Randu and Patrice Cox Neves. The Growing Up Woodbrook podcast has also been the recipient of a generous grant from the Heritage Preservation Division of the Ministry of Tourism, Culture and the Arts. The music in this episode was our theme song, History of the Woodbrook Vicinity by the Mighty Growler. We're our song by Larry Darrow. I'm going to buy a bungalow by Roaring Lion. Frozen Chicken by Lord Christo. Fit in a Fit by Cecil Fit and his orchestra. And Steel Band Clash by Lord Blakey. We invite you to join us. Subscribe and spread the word. Tell a friend or ten about our podcast and our book. If you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment, click on the link in the show notes to record a voicemail. And we'll see you back here next time on Growing Up Woodbrook, the podcast. Mm-hmm.